The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, as many of you know, today is Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of what sometimes is called Holy Week during the Easter season. And it's a time, it's the time of the year when Christians around the world People around the globe who have put their faith in Jesus create space to remember and to celebrate the final week of Jesus' life before the resurrection. It starts with today, with Palm Sunday, which celebrates Jesus presenting himself as the promised Messianic and Davidic king to Jerusalem. And some Christians then go on to celebrate a holiday that's called Monday Thursday. Perhaps you've heard of this. This is uh, on Thursday, and it celebrates the foot washing of Jesus, and they'll wash one another's feet in remembrance of that night, the Last Supper with the disciples. And then on Good Friday, we celebrate the death of Jesus, making payment for sin, the sacrifice of his life in the crucifixion. And then, of course, Easter Sunday celebrates the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his victory over sin, Satan, and death. Now, this morning, we are continuing our series from the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be considering how Jesus is both the Messianic King and the great High Priest. You see, the role of the king was to lead and protect and serve God's people on his behalf. He was commissioned to the job of of loving God's people so well that he served them in the way that God serves them, that he protected them, and that he made sure that there was provision for them. Now, the role of priest was to represent the heart of God to the people, and the heart of the people to God. Today, we will be looking at how Jesus is both of those realities, how he is both king and priest. So we've spent the last two weeks looking at a section of Hebrews that camps out on the mysterious figure Melchizedek. Now, not much is said in the Old Testament about Melchizedek. He pops up in the book of Genesis. Uh, During the story of Abraham, he's there for a grand total of four verses. And it is there that we see that long before the existence of the law, long before the books of Moses, before the priesthood, before the sacrificial system, Melchizedek... This strange character who pops up for four verses was both a king and a priest. The Bible says that he was a priest of God Most High. And he comes to Abraham after a battle in which Abraham's nephew, Lot, was rescued from invading enemies. He was kidnapped from the city of Sodom, the city in which he lived at that time. And on the return from that great victory, Abraham is greeted with bread and wine by Melchizedek. And there, 
Melchizedek pronounced blessing upon him. And he said to him, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham then responds by giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he owns. He tithes to Melchizedek. And so this great figure that we've been discussing now, this is the third week that we've been talking about Melchizedek because of his presence in the book of Hebrews. Those are the only four verses that are really written about him. The only other section of the Old Testament that mentions Melchizedek is found in the Psalms. Psalm 110 is this prophetic psalm that predicts the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And it describes those that will be a part of that kingdom. It was written by David, and it was written long after the time of Abraham. It it, it actually is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Now in this psalm, David calls Messiah his Lord, which is a really strange way to refer to one of your descendants especially if you're the king of Israel at the time. So this is a detail that Jesus picks up on in the gospel when he quotes from that psalm to prove that he, that the Messiah, is greater than David and to point to his divinity. The psalm goes on to describe the Messiah and his kingdom by saying that he will have a scepter to rule over his people in the presence of of his enemies. It describes how the people will devote their lives freely to the Messiah and be and they will be dressed as a nation of priests in holy garments. So the whole kingdom is going to become this nation of priests. Then comes the verse that mentions Melchizedek. David prophesies. He says, "The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4, for those of you who would like to look that up. Now, for those born under the Levitical system, this is a very strange statement. The fact that Messiah would be king was a given. That, that made sense completely. But the fact that he would be a priest was new information. I mean, when you read the prophecies concerning Messiah and his kingdom, it paints incredible pictures about what it would look like. Under the reign of Messiah, people would not have to worry about staples like bread and wine because God would miraculously provide for their needs. It would be a time of restoration. A time where the sick were healed, the oppressed would be free, the dead would be raised, the lame would walk, the lepers would be cleansed. And it wouldn't just be the upper crust of society that got to enjoy these incredible benefits in the kingdom. No, no, the good news was for the poor as well. It would be good news for them as well, not just the the people who were of means in society. Well, when John the Baptist was in prison, Jesus receives a message from John the Baptist. And the message is, hey, you know, I'm still sitting here in prison, and I'm just wondering, 
Are you the messianic king? Because I could really use your help right now. Or should we wait for another? Am I looking at the wrong guy? And Jesus responds to the messengers by saying this. He says, go tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus is telling John, hey, if you're wondering if I'm the Messiah, if you're wondering if I'm the king, look at what is happening around me. Don't you see that the promises of God are coming true in my presence? Look at what's happening under my influence. Does it align with the, what the prophets have pictured? Now, that's easy for John to accept, the fact that Jesus would be king. This was a given. His kingdom is incredible in its description. But the idea that he would be both a king and a priest is a strange bit of information. The new information that he would also act as a priest is strange to the ears of an Israelite. You see, according to the law, a priest had to be from the tribe of Levi. He also couldn't own land. He needed to be, the, be between the age of 25 and 50. And when a Levitical priest aged out or died, another was commissioned to take his place. Now, the office of high priest was unique, though. It wasn't just that you had to be from the tribe of Levi or that you had to be a male from the tribe of Levi, but you had to be from a specific family within Levi, from the family of Aaron. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. Now, a king, on the other hand, could own land. He didn't have an age restriction. He could be from another tribe. So when David calls the Messiah both king and a priest, it is a strange verse indeed. What a weird prophecy to be hanging out in the Psalms. And even more than that, it's strange because David calls him a priest from a different priestly order than the Levites. He says that he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. A priesthood that predates the history of Israel and the, and the formation of the Levitical priesthood. Now, if that weren't strange enough, he confirms this prophecy by demonstrating that this is something that God declares will happen because he has sworn or because he's given an oath that he will make it happen. And in this single verse, in Psalm 110, verse 4, the oath, the oath of the Lord declares that Messiah will be both a king and a priest forever. There's no time constraint. It's not like the Levitical priesthood. It's different. It's after the order of Melchizedek. And it's a priesthood that will remain eternal. So as we've been discussing the last few weeks, the author has been camping on this reality. 
to demonstrate how it is that Jesus perfectly fulfills this prophecy. And the reason that he's making this argument is that these Hebrew Christians are in danger of going back to Judaism because of their desire to gain relief from the pressure that they are facing. And if they just turn back to Judaism, they'll at least be accepted within the Jewish community. They've had their possessions taken. They've suffered persecution for their belief in Jesus as Messiah. And there's just a simple way for them to alleviate that pressure, that suffering. All they have to do is demonstrate that they're still good Jews who hold on to the Old Testament, who keep the laws. And the author of Hebrew is building for them a biblical case for why it doesn't make sense to go back to the Old Testament way of relating to God. He's building a case for them to say, what you have in Christ is so much better. How could you ever go back to that old way of relating to God? What they have in Christ is greater. It's truer. It's better. And the section that we're in has been telling us that Jesus is the promised high priest whose priestly order is like Melchizedek. He does not need a genetic connection to the Levitical priesthood or to the Aaronic priesthood. He was raised from the dead and he lives forever. So he never has to transfer his responsibilities to another. He remains forever in that position as high priest, as representative from God to man and from man to God. He, his priesthood predates the Levitical priesthood and his priesthood will outlast it. And rather than being born into a priestly family, Jesus is made high priest by the promise that God swore to do so. And this elevates his priesthood beyond that of the Levitical priesthood because you could just be born into the priesthood. But Jesus is made a priest by the divine promise of the Father himself. I swore, I'll never repent, I'll never change my mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in addition to all of that, Jesus then is the guarantor of a better covenant than the old covenant that God made with Israel. A covenant that they were never actually able to keep. And this is something that in the next chapter, in chapter 8, we're going to go into in a little bit more detail. How much better the new covenant is. What Christ has secured for us. The terms of relationship that we have with the Father as a result of the work of Jesus. Now as Pastor Paul noted last week, this chapter is laden with eternal or, or forever language. And our section today continues to drill down on that truth. We pick up at the end of, of chapter 7 in verse 23. Would you read this text with me? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God 
through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once, once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. For those of you who like to take notes, our outline for this week is fairly simple. The high priestly ministry of Jesus is, verse 23 to verse 24, permanent. Verse 25, personal. And verses 26 to 28, perfect. The high priestly ministry of Jesus is permanent, personal, and perfect. Let's take a look at the permanent high priestly ministry of Jesus. From verses 23 and 24, he says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You know, one of the great difficulties in Israel's history was the constant fluctuation of integrity among its leaders, among its spiritual leaders. It's claimed, according to James Montgomery Boyce, that there were 84 high priests who served from Aaron until the destruction of the temple by the Romans. 84 high priests. The lesser priestly numbers were much larger than that. The priesthood and even the office of high priest was riddled with sin and failure throughout Israel's history. I think of the sons of Samuel and Eli, some of who were sleeping with women at the the gates of the house of the Lord and were greedy for their own gain. They would just, they would take from God's sacrifices and take out a big meat hook and pull out a large portion from themselves from the boiling pots at the altar. I think of Ezekiel, the prophet who was told by God in a vision to to drill a hole, to pick away a hole into the, the, the chamber where the priests would ready themselves for priestly service. And inside there was all kinds of sin and wickedness taking place. I think of the countless warnings of the prophets of how, how the priests facilitated idolatry in Israel. They were the ones leading the way in the high places and in the groves, leading the people that they were supposed to lead to God away from God into idolatry and wickedness. If you were dependent on these guys to facilitate your relationship between you and God, you were in trouble. Now, this becomes especially relevant in the role of high priest. You see, the sacrificial system in Israel was intended to accomplish four key things in demonstrating the worthiness of God in worship. The first thing that the sacrificial 
system accomplished was this idea of repentance. By having to come and repent of sin and take account of the wrongdoings, it discouraged, it deterred Israel from continuing in sin. So this forced act of of having to come and take ownership of your failings was a way to say, I don't want to have to keep making sacrifices. It's it's costly, it's bloody, it's painful every time I have to go and worship the Lord. It discouraged sinfulness. The second thing it accomplished was ransom. The animals that were sacrificed provided a symbolic payment for the hard cost or the debt of the wrongdoing created by sin. The third thing that the sacrificial system accomplished was purification. They provided symbolic purification for the community and the temple from the damage that was caused by sin. The act of sacrificing an animal was a way of sort of that animal absorbing the impurity of sin and cleansing a space for God to dwell once again. And the fourth reason that the sacrificial system, uh, that it was, boy, the fourth reason that the sacrificial system uh, was implemented by God was covenant renewal. All of the above, all of the sacrifices, all the repentance, the ransom, the purification, allowed God to maintain his presence with his people without compromising his divine justice. It was a way of of, of creating a space where, where God could be with his people and he didn't have to just sort of like look past their sin. There was an accounting that was rendered and the the relationship that he had with them was being renewed through the sacrificial system continually. This is even more evident on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a national holy day for Israel. The five various types of sacrifices from Leviticus 1 through 7, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, each one of them focuses on different parts of those four purposes that we just described. But the Day of Atonement took all of those sacrifices and combined them into one very vivid, very public display. Now, throughout the year, the Israelites are going to introduce a lot of sin to Israel, to God's people. And therefore, the damage and the defilement that would come, would infiltrate their community and the presence of the temple. And there's no way that a sacrifice could be offered for each and every misdeed among Israel. Surely there were sins and offenses that were covered up. It remained secret. They were never really truly confessed. Things like sexual misbehavior or idolatry or theft. And so every year, the high priest would enter the tent and make atoning sacrifices first for himself and his family. Now remember, this is a very public festival. Everybody is required to take the time off. Everybody is required to come and worship. And so the entire community would shut down to witness this ritual. Then the high priest would bring the blood of a sacrificial animal and, and, and would take it past the veil, the curtain that separated the presence of God from 
the rest of the tabernacle, the holy of holies. The high priest would bring the blood of the sacrificial animal past the curtain that separated the people from the presence of God. He would sprinkle the blood on this golden box called the Ark of the Covenant that was inside of that portion of the tabernacle. That Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the presence of God. The lid on top was called the mercy seat. But here's the problem. If that high priest had any hidden sin, anything that he had not confessed, anything not paid for by the blood of an animal, by the blood of a sacrifice, he would die the minute he crossed the curtain. He would die. Having a morally compromised high priest affected whether or not the sacrifice would be received. Having the wrong guys or high priest meant that everyone's sin remained for the coming year. Not only that, but now you've got to find a new high priest. It was a tragic thing to be subject to the holiness of one person in order to have a right relationship with God. But Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, the sinless high priest will never fail and can never be replaced. He is a permanent high priest. He does not die. He does not have sin. And he makes atonement on our behalf. Jesus holds the office of high priest permanently because he is sinless and will never die again. When he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead forever. His position as the perfect high priest can never be replaced. Think about the stability that that brings. A Christian never has to wonder if they have a representative before the throne of God. We never have to wonder if he's holy enough, if our sins will actually be forgiven this time. We never have to worry or have fear when coming before the Father. We never have to worry about someone taking his place that would be of lesser quality because Jesus is a permanent high priest forever. You know, presently, we have similar, prob- similar problems in the, the church, don't we? Various Christian frontmen who carry weight and influence in the Christian world who are now embroiled in some sort of scandal or sin. For some who sat under them, this causes great internal conflict, doesn't it? They, they begin to reason, they begin to think for themselves, well, I, I thought that he was the, the holy one. I thought that he was the person who got it, who understood what it means to walk with God. I, I thought he was the one who had all this God stuff all figured out. What does it mean for me to know that the spiritual leader I've been following was secretly having an affair? was caught up in sin. Is this whole thing a sham? To that person, the author of Hebrews offers this encouragement. There is a perfect person who represents you before the Father. His name is Jesus. His character never changes and neither does the effectiveness of his ministry. And you stand under his umbrella.
Guys, this is the most amazing thing about being a Christian. You personally get access to the Father because of what Jesus has done. Not because you follow the right guy, not because you take notes when Pastor Jeremy is teaching or Pastor Paul is your favorite or because you are on the Billy Graham newsletter or because you follow Tim Keller on Twitter. But because Jesus stands there on your behalf. A high priest forever. Which leads the author to the next thought in verse 25. Not only is his high priestly ministry permanent, but it is perfect. Read verse 25 with me. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because he will never die and can never be replaced for all eternity, he represents us as an intercessor before the Father. Now the word intercession means to intercede or to, to go between or, or to represent one on behalf of another. It was used to refer to bringing a petition to a king on behalf of someone else. Now follow the, the next logical step in this argument here because it's powerful. This means that Jesus, acting as our representative high priest before God, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. I love how Dane Orland puts this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says this about this phrase. He says, the phrase to the uttermost is one Greek word, panteles. It is a word denoting comprehensiveness, completeness, exhaustive wholeness. The only other place it's used in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 13, verse 11, where it describes a woman who cannot stand up straight, quote, all the way, unquote, but has been disabled for 18 years. What is the point of saying that Christ saves to the uttermost? Listen to what he says here. I love this. We who know our own hearts understand. We are to the uttermost sinners. And, a, and we need a to the uttermost Savior. We need a to the uttermost Savior. Listen, no matter how deep the distress, no matter how great the sin, we have a perfect high priest who makes an atoning sacrifice for our sins and becomes our advocate before the Father. To the uttermost. All the way to the, to the furthest place that you can think of where shame does not dare to see the light of day. In that moment where, where you feel like, I don't even know if I can put words to what I've done. I feel so bad about it. It's in that place to the uttermost and beyond that the work of Christ accomplishes all that it was meant to do. He saves to the uttermost, to the fullest in our lives, and to the uttermost in terms of time, all the way to the end of eternity. When we stand before 
the judgment seat of Christ on the day when we give an account for our lives. The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of our high priest, is sufficient even until then. To the uttermost. Again, the author of Hebrews makes this so clear by adding the phrase, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, the perfect high priest, perfectly atones for and defends his imperfect people. There's this amazing illustration of this from the Old Testament. It's found in Zechariah chapter 3. The prophet Zechariah has a vision of the holiest man in the land, the high priest of that time, a guy named Joshua, standing before the judgment seat of God. Now the high priest is clothed in filthy garments and it's, it's a symbol in this vision that Zechariah is having of his tattered righteousness. The angel of the Lord and Satan, the accuser of the brethren, are standing there like two attorneys about to battle it out over the life of Joshua, the high priest. And the angel of the Lord is standing there and Satan is acting as the prosecutor, accusing Joshua of crimes against the holiness of God. And as the accusations come forth, the angel of the Lord speaks up, the Lord interrupts, and says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, has, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand that I have plucked from the fire? Zechariah 3.2. I love that. I love that picture. Think about this. Joshua, the high priest, he's there, he's filthy, he's covered in in his own sin, and it's apparent to everyone. He did it to himself. He's soiled because of who he is. And the accuser is ready to point fingers. Look at that. Look at those stains. Look at that unrighteousness. Look at how filthy he is. And the angel of the Lord, this figure, like unto Jesus, says the Lord rebuke you. Is this not a brand that I've plucked from the fire? The idea, like, yeah, he he should be roasting in the fires of hell, but I pulled him out. (laughs) I have saved him. Then the angel of the Lord speaks up and he commands those around him to remove the filthy garments and to give him fresh, clean clothes. And then he says, behold, Joshua, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you in pure vestments. (laughs) Zachariah, who's standing by, he gets so excited at what he's seeing in this moment that he, he just shouts out from the sidelines, give him a clean turban too. After that, the angel of the Lord prophesies to Zachariah and he says, there is one coming from God whom he calls the branch That's a reference to the Davidic Messiah, the root, the branch of Jesse, who will take away the sins, listen, he will take away the sins of the entire nation in a day. Zechariah 3.8. Folks, I, I I want you to hear this. This is a scene that plays out in reality Every moment of every day. 
You know, the reformers did a great job of, of reminding us of what Jesus did in the past by recovering for us the doctrine of justification by faith and by faith alone. They, they emphasized that the work of Jesus on the cross was so sufficient that we truly are forgiven. And that's what he's done in the past. And, and the evangelical movement has really restored to us a hope for the future in the return of Christ and the restoration of all things. But have you ever asked yourself, what is Christ doing right now? What good is Jesus to me Presently, I know what he's done in the past. I know what he will do in the future. What good is Jesus to me presently? What is he doing now? Well, here in this passage, you're given the answer. He is our advocate, our intercessor before the Father. At this very hour, at this current moment right now, here all of you are and represented by your lives in this room is a whole bunch of sin. There is incalculable sins present, represented through our lives. And the truth is, like Joshua, we are all guilty. And when Satan brings accusation against us, he is not wrong. He's right about our sin. And because God is holy and righteous and because he's loving, he must judge the sin and sentence the sinner in order to restore justice. He must make right what has been damaged by our sin. Also present though in that scene that unfolds every moment of every day is our advocate, the high priest, of our confession, Jesus. And with every accusation that Satan brings, all that Jesus has to do is raise his hands to reveal the scars. Say, no, no, listen. I paid for that one too. That one's paid for too. Nope, that one's forgiven. Remember, I suffered for that one. Remember, I took the penalty for that one. That one's paid for too. To the uttermost, I have paid for it. His very presence in the heavenly courtroom is a physical witness of the forgiveness purchased on our behalf. He is the eternally living sacrifice for sin who intercedes on our behalf continually. So what is Jesus doing now? He is interceding to the, until the end of time in order that we might be saved to the uttermost. Well, not only that, but the author of Hebrews goes on to say that the high priestly of ministry, ministry of Jesus is not only permanent and personal, but it's perfect. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints 
a son who has been made perfect forever. Notice in verse 26 it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Why is it fitting? Because he perfectly fits the need. It is fitting because our need is perfectly met by the sufficiency of Christ. Would you notice the descriptors given to Jesus in the, the verses that follow? Kenneth Wiest, in his, in his Greek New Testament study on the book of Hebrews, gives the definitions. He says it like this. The word holy is the Greek word hosios, which means free from wickedness. The word innocent is the Greek word akakos, which means free from evil or, or not evil. The word unstained is the Greek word amiantos, which means free from impurity or impairment. And he's separated from sinners, free from contact with what would or could defile. And he is exalted above the heavens. What a description of Jesus. Free from wickedness, free from evil, free from impurity or impairment, free from contact with what would or could defile and exalted above the heavens. Mankind needed an internal priest who was free from wickedness, who was free from evil, who was free from impurity or impairment, free from anything which could defile him. See how Jesus stands in contrast to the earthly priesthood? The author of Hebrews points out that the priests were always having to make sacrifices for themselves first. Not only that, but their sacrifices were many. They had to be repeated again and again to renew the sense of purification, to renew the ransom for sin, to renew repentance, to renew covenant relationship and covenant renewal. But Jesus never had to sacrifice for his own sin. He was sinless. Also, Jesus' sacrifice never needs to be renewed. It was once for all. He gave his own sinless and undefiled life in exchange for his people, and it is sufficient for every sin. Always. For all time. His priesthood is perfect because it perfectly fits the need. In verse 28, the author says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Listen, the great dilemma of mankind is revealed from the very first pages of Scripture, isn't it? God made a people in his own image to share his authority on earth, a shared relationship where he intended for them to be his people and for for him to be their God. They would live like a hand in a glove type of relationship, God animating, giving life and direction to his people and them doing and accomplishing his good will on the earth. Him sharing his rule and his authority for all of eternity. But the first people rejected his authority and sought to establish a kingdom of their own through their choice to sin. So God banished them from his presence in the Garden of Eden. 
And later, as history unfolds, the tabernacle and the temple become these symbols to Israel of the way back to God. The tabernacle and the temple are decorated in such a way that they look like the Garden of Eden. There are fruit trees embroidered into the veil and there are golden fruits all around on top of the posts. And the cherubim guard the mercy seat, the presence of God on the Ark of the Covenant. Just like the cherubim were placed at the Garden of Eden. And through the worship, through what is taking place in the sacrificial system, it's like there is an invitation from God to say, there is a way back to me. There's a way back to me. It's God beckoning to his people to return to him. It is patterned as a sort of mini model of the dwelling place of God. It's a way of God calling people back to the place of fellowship, back to the place of his original intent in creation. But you can only come back when your sin is fully dealt with. And so, in the sacrificial system, day after day, blood is shed as a way of picturing man's need to pay for their offense, to pay for their sin, to satisfy the need for justice before God. Animals by the thousands are offered continually and the priests function more like butchers than holy men. By the end of the day, they're covered in blood and hair and guts and entrails. They smell of smoke and burnt flesh. You see, to worship was simultaneously beautiful because of the invitation to come to God and brutal all in the same moment. God was near, but he was always just out of reach. Just on the other side of the curtain. There's so many barriers to get to him. I want you to see the temple here. As you look at the temple, is it up yet? As you look at the temple, you, you'll, you see kind of the temple platform. This is the temple mount. Now, in the, in the large blank sections on the sides, that was called the, the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. Now, if you were not of the house of Israel, you were not born into the family of Israel, you could come and, and visit the Temple Mount. Each court in the tabernacle, and especially the temple, acted like sort of filters that prevented people from getting any closer to God. So in Jerusalem or on the Temple Mount, anyone could come and see the house of the Lord, whether or not you were Jew or Gentile. Now, if you were an Israelite, you could go to that, at the very bottom of the temple itself, there was the courtyard of women. It's a little square place at the very bottom there. Now, in the courtyard of women, anybody who was an Israelite could come into the court of the women. You had to be an Israelite to make it there. But you had to be a Jewish male to make it beyond the court of women, to go and actually bring the sacrifices in where they could be slaughtered on your behalf. So you had to be a Jewish male who was circumcised to make it beyond the court of women. But that was as far as you could go. 
unless you were a Levite. If you were a Levite, you could do some of the cleaning around the temple. You couldn't offer sacrifices. Those were only saved for the Aaronic priests. But you could go and and help upkeep the temple. You could go in and out of the house of the Lord if you were a Levite. So you could go beyond the place of sacrifice and do work in and around God's house. But to make sacrifices and enter into the holy place and to have that kind of closeness and intimacy with God, you had to be of the household of Aaron to sacrifice to the Lord. And if you were a part of the household of Aaron, that was as far as you could go, unless you were the high priest from Aaron's household. Then you could go into the holiest of holies. But you only got to do that one day out of the year. One person on one day out of the year invited to go in to the presence of God. See how everybody gets filtered out? God is always just out of reach, just out of touch, just can't quite get there. Your access was very limited. But listen, when Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice, how did the Father respond? What did the Father do? He tore the veil in the temple. There was no longer a need for separation. Atonement had been made in a single day forever. It is the perfect fulfillment of the promised way to provide a way back to God's presence for his people. And Jesus fulfills the promise of a way back to God. Now, before we leave, there's a couple of things that are important I want us to remember about this. First of all, who initiated this plan? Whose idea was this? You know, the Bible tells us that it was agreed upon within the Trinity, within God himself, before the foundations of the world before sin ever occurred. God planned for this. Listen, you know what that means? That means that God himself, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, are wholly committed and to drawing you into their presence. Every part of the Trinitarian God is committed to drawing you back to closeness. The Father? It is the Father who sends the Son to save. It is the Father who sends the Spirit to draw us to Christ. It is the Father who sees the sacrifice of the Son and is pleased and says, I am satisfied. The Son? It is the Son who lays down His life sinlessly as a human and offers His own life as a sacrifice in our place. And even now it is the Son who intercedes and advocates on our behalf before the Father as a physical reminder of the justice of God being accomplished and satisfied. The Spirit? It is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead by the will of the Father. 
It is the Spirit who then fills the heart of the believer with the presence of God and regenerates their heart to love and follow Him. It is the Spirit who presently, at this very moment, takes our jumbled up words and and translates them to, to direct language before God so that He truly knows what is in our hearts. He intercedes on our behalf with groanings that we can't even utter. And we are perfectly represented before the Father. Listen, I want to tell you something. The Father is not an angry dad in the background whom the Son and the Spirit work to try and calm down because he's so angry all the time. Redemption was his idea too. It pleased the Father to bruise him. The Father initiated our way back to him. Did you hear the promise that was made about Melchizedek? The Lord, the Father, has sworn and will not change his mind that you, the Son, are priests forever after the word of Melchizedek. It is the Father who initiates the way back. And it's the Son who makes it happen. And it is the Spirit who now draws us. Jesus fulfills the promise. The Spirit draws us to trust and believe that the way back has actually been achieved. But here's my question to you. As the band comes up, I want to ask you this. Do you live in this reality of the love that the Father has for us? Do you you feel invited to come boldly before his throne to receive grace and mercy in time of need? Or, or, Or do you feel more so the separation of your own sin? Listen, it it is one thing to theorize about the reality of Jesus being our intercessor. It is completely another to appropriate or to utilize Jesus in that way presently. It is one thing to talk about theology and to declare great truths about a restored relationship that we can have with the Father by the Spirit through Christ. It is quite another to act upon that truth. To live in that reality. Listen, some of you here today, you've come in, you're burdened by sin. I'm guessing. I'm guessing you're like, man, I I don't know if I can really enter into worship quite yet because I don't feel like I've felt bad enough about my sin. My devotions this last week were really kind of lagging. Maybe I just, I haven't shown God the sincereness of my heart to love and follow him. And so how can I come boldly into his presence? Or, man, I really blew it. I've really messed up. Maybe I just need to hang my head a little bit so that God knows I'm I'm really, really sorry for what I've done. Listen. More sincere worship will not earn you anything more than what you already have in Christ Jesus. You do not have to hang your head in shame to prove that you feel bad enough about your most recent failure. More devotions will not make you more loved than you already are because of what Christ has accomplished. 
The invitation from the author of Hebrews to the original audience and to us is trust what Jesus did as our high priest and come boldly. Come boldly before the throne. Our high priest has made a way for us not only to have access and be accepted, but but to be adopted as sons and daughters of God.